welcome to Lazarus Theatre Company's new podcast, Spotlight On, where we turn the spotlight on to reveal the people behind the scenes, those who make Lazarus work, the creatives, the artists, the process, the creation. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm Gavin harrington Radidra, producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I'm Ricky Dukes, artistic director of Lazarus Theatre Company. Hello, Ricky. What's new with you? What's new? Buenos Aires. <laughs> <laughs> don't know why that came into my head. What's new? What is new? Well, yeah, oh, I don't know, actually. It's um, <laughs> strange, isn't it? We were just sort of, as we were setting up, just talking about how time is such a real weird, strange thing at the moment where, you know, yep. when, when you look at, um, we put in an ACE application, didn't we? You go, oh, God, that feels like ages ago. And you go, oh, no, that was two weeks ago. And you go, where has that time gone? You don't quite know how long a day or a week is at the moment, which is a bit peculiar, even though no. we have got a template or, a, you know, we've got a schedule. Um, it, it just uh, very strange. So we're, we're sort of carrying on, aren't we? <laughs> got to, got to. Got no choice, right? Each, each day comes after another. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What's new with you? What's new? Um, pretty much the same, I think. Um, I don't I honestly don't know what day it is today. Um, I thought I did, but that was yesterday. So um, I, <laughs> I think it's Tuesday. I think that sounds right. Yeah. Let me check on the computer. It's it, it, it's the 13th. Yes, it's Tuesday, the 13th of April, everyone. Right. There we go. Now, now they, they know they know where we are. <laughs> this is it. Although this won't be going out on Tuesday, the 13th of April. So that might just confuse a lot of people. <laughs> well, they're getting to see behind the curtain, aren't they? <laughs> So, Ricky, this is a bit of a different spotlight on. Um, I came to you earlier in the week, or was it late last week, and said, um, maybe we should have a bit of an, a conversation about how, how Lazarus started and, and, and where, it, where it, you know, its history and where it's come from. So, um, and you said, yeah, sure, why not? So um, why don't you tell us um, about how Lazarus began? Long ago. <laughs> don't know why I'm doing a musical theatre edition this week. Um, well, I suppose it kind of, yeah, it came out of, um, I'd gone to drama school to train as an actor and had done a few bits and bobs after uh, graduating and was kind of not particularly excited about the sort of work I was being put up for and doing really. I mean, it was, some of, some of it was good, but but it was kind of a bit, this isn't quite what I was um, wanting to do. You know, as an actor, training actor, I was in love with uh, Propeller and shared experience, um, companies that don't exist really <laughs> anymore. Um, so it was, but, but certainly shared experience. I, was, I, I would go and see wherever they were uh, across the UK. And they used to come to the Tricycle, which is now the Kiln, of course, in Kilburn. And I used to live in North London, up in Queen's Park. And, um, you know, and I'd see their work. I always remember their production of Orestes, and I, I sort of really, really remember it. Actually, I'm sort of surprised how much I remember it. But it really sort of took my breath away, and kind of thought that's the sort of work I want to be doing. But of course, it's really difficult to get into those companies, um, and that's just not the sort of work that that I was doing. So a friend said, "Well, why don't you, you know, put your money where your mouth is and put on a show, put, create some work um, that you do want to be part of?" And I wanted, I, you know, quickly rejected that because. That's what people did when they didn't get any work. 
um, certainly from my drama school anyway, people who couldn't get any work with, we're going to make our own theatre company. And you go, oh, yeah, it's because no one will employ you, love. But <laughs> which was an awful, awful thing to think mm. and a terrible, terrible thing. But it was true. That was what so many of them did. But um, so I was sort of quite reluctant and we thought, well, let, let's let's do something. So so we did. And we, we thought we'd start light and cheerful. So we did uh, Medea. Uh, oh, that old comedy. Medea, yeah. That old comedy. You know, whoops, there goes my banana. <laughs> and um, and so so we did it. And um, interesting, the, 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 the name, I suppose, um, is interesting because we do get quite a bit, not so much these days, actually, but we used to get quite a lot of male thinking we were some sort of religious company, the uh, mm -hmm. story of Lazarus. But we kind of had to go, well, what did we... What do we call this company? What is this company called? And we were racking our brains and sort of thinking, what can we do? What can we do? And then there's a story that came back into my head of when I was at university, I used to run the drama society for, I only did it for about a year or so. And um, when that came to an end, there was a kind of conversation about what if we started a classics company? Um, and we were sort of chatting uh, and kind of throwing some ideas around and it didn't really come to anything, but the great Jason Carnegie, hello, Jason, if you're listening, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm sure he isn't, but if he is, <laughs> um, uh, he, there was one day we were walking down the corridor and I, I, I bumped into him and um, I can't quite remember how the conversation went, but he said, oh, well, you're a right Lazarus, you are. And I sort of chuckled and smiled because I didn't really know what he was talking about. And, you know, that polite way you sort of nod and smile and, ha, 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 and yeah. then walk on. And I didn't really know what he meant. Anyway, fast forward then to 2007, I think it was, was um, Medea. Medea, yeah. Um, uh, fast forward to there thinking, oh, God, that story just came out to my head. So I, I emailed him or Facebooked him or something just saying, uh, what did you mean? Hello, Jason, I haven't seen you for years. How are you? And by the way, do you remember that <laughs> conversation? And anyway, he told me the story of Lazarus and, and how, um, you know, the idea of giving life and bringing, bringing work back to from the dead. So that was the sort of the initial idea with Lazarus, really, is, is what if it's a company that brings old plays back from the dead? Maybe uh, plays that we think we know, putting a different spin on them, uh, seeing them from a different point of view, different prism. Um, and so that's it. And so we did we did Medea and it was a, a probably a catastrophe is probably the word you put to it. Mm -hmm. Not not necessarily the process. I mean, the actors were great and they, you know, the, I, I was happy with the show, I suppose. But but of course, doing a fringe ver production um, just off the off the bat, just doing it, it lost an incredible amount of money. And, you know, it was it was a baptism of fire, really. And so after that, it it um, we we went back to basics, I guess, and sort of going back to well, actually, let's do some scratch nights, let's do some smaller scale stuff, and just start to build this thing up. Let's not go in with this huge production that you know you don't really know what you're doing. Um, so it was one hell of a way to start, and I'm mm -hmm. I'm glad we sort of did it. I mean, I think we're, I think I'm still paying it back. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it was um, yeah, Medea, and I think in a way, actually, Medea was a great play to sort of start put you stake in the ground and go this is the sort of work we're going to be doing mm -hmm. um and why theater what what is it that draws you to the, to the medium of theater um i think it changes you know depending on what play we're doing or or the type of stuff that you go and watch but ultimately and i think we've probably experienced this more so this year not being able to go to the theater um the past 12 months or so uh is that that's the sense of the collective, the sense of the communal, the sense of being in the same room together, sharing something. But also for me, it's the theatricality of it. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, anything can happen. Um, 
the magic of theatre can transport you to anywhere. But just with some very basic pieces of storytelling, you can be swept up in something. And I don't necessarily mean that escapist way in kind of, oh, I'm, I'm transported somewhere else and not my own world. But you can, you can be transported into incredible scenarios, incredible situations. Um, and telling a story visually, but also with sensory uh, elements to it as well, whether that be, you know, uh, fans of our work will know the haze machine gets pulled out quite a lot. Um, but just being in a space, feeling the warmth of the lamp, smelling the haze, being in the space of these incredible stories. Scale, that's, that's the thing that really excites me. And it's so much more impressive being in a theatre and 25 people walk on than a film where there's thousands of people. That doesn't particularly excite me. Whereas on stage and in comes Tamburlaine's army and you go, oh, this is fun. You know, like we're, we're here, we're really here. And you're not, you're in a theatre, but it feels like we're really here. So I think, I think it's um, the theatricality of it, the excitement of the scenography as well as the, it's happening right in front of me. It's happening there. Like there's, there's Tamburlaine, there's Dido, there's King Lear, like they're here. Um, so you said in 2007, you, you did a production of Medea. Um, then over the next few years, you kind of, the, the, the work propagated and you did more, more productions. So in 2008, you did a production of Electra. Um, then in 2009, you did a production of Duchess of Melfi, a production of Salome and a production of Julius Caesar. Um, all the, again, comedies, uh, you really like <laughs> the light, lighthearted stuff. Um, 2010, you then did Othello, Hecuba and the White Devil. So how did that progression happen? How did you go from one production for the first two years each year to doing three productions a year for the next two? God, it feels like this is your life, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> where's the big red book and, or, you know. Um, so how did that happen? So we, so after Medea, I guess it was sort of rolling back a bit and going, okay, let's, let's go back a bit. And a great um, support of our work, uh, Sue, Sue Downing, I was at university with, and she, I don't know how she got hold of this, but she sent me this, this um, bit of blurb in an email just saying, oh, look, there's this scratch performance thing. And I was like, oh, I wonder what this is. And let's have a look at it. And it was this project called Scene Pool, which was run by, um, again, a, an incredible supporter and a, a really good friend now, um, run by Kerry Irvine. And it was run at the Camden People's Theatre. And um, it was basically, you, you turned up, uh, for a 20 minute slot there was four slots a night you 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 turned up and the end of the day the box office was split out on the table and it was split between everybody and off you went and of course mm -hmm. we went and spent our nine pounds each uh in the pub down the road lovely little pub I forgot what it's called now just around the corner from the camera people's theater you know the one it's not the oh, globe is it not the i don't mm. Don't know, lovely down the side. Anyway, yeah. um, that's where <laughs> all the companies went and just put all that money straight into the bar. Yeah. But um, it was great because it meant the pressure was off a bit and you could just just do the play. And we rehearsed, we did a production of Electra, as you say. And I was sort of probably a little bit um, overzealous with it, but we set it in Zimbabwe. So there's this sort of uh, dictatory background to it. And the set was this huge, humongous flag of Zimbabwe and of course the smoke machine. Um, so we turned up with a bag for life with uh, a humongous <laughs> flag of Zimbabwe. God knows what people thought when they sort of walking past or, you know, on the tubes and, and the smoke machine. And, and we rehearsed it in, um, I think, in parks and things. I think we just did it anywhere, really. Mm -hmm. And um, and we did it. But it, it was it was it felt like um, you could just do anything because it's 20 minutes. Um and of course you gave it everything you could because you wanted it to be great, but it was just a, a fantastic opportunity to just try something out mm -hmm. without having to put 
£15,000 of your own money into a show that you're definitely not going to get back. Mm. So so we did that. And from that, I then started introducing myself to artistic directors of fringe venues, getting people involved. And Jasmine Collingford, who was the artistic director of the Blue Elephant Theatre down in Campbell, she came to see Electra and said, it's fantastic. Let's move it and let's transfer it. And we're like, great, let's go for a three, four week run. This is brilliant. This is the way it's meant to happen. And then the, the slot that we were offered wasn't until about a year later, uh, maybe a little bit less than that, but it felt like a year later. That, And so we went, well, actually, what if we did something else? Maybe we didn't do Electra. What if else, what else do we do? So that's where the Duchess of Malfi came in and going, actually, let's do a bit of early modern drama. So we did a, a 90 minute version. And uh, I always, always remember turning up one night uh, during the run and, um, going past the box office and a, a, an elderly gentleman was, oh, what's the runtime, please? And they said it was 90 minutes. And he sort of staff went, oh, it's abridged. And, um, <laughs> and that was it. And that was his, I don't know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but mm -hmm. um, he, he spoke to the cast afterwards and seemed to enjoy it. So, um, so it was sort of building bit by bit there and then building our relationship with the Blue Elephant Theatre. And, and we went on to do maybe two or three shows at the Blue Elephant uh, Theatre each year. Um, so there's no sort of formal residency, but it just felt that that was home really. And doing something you feels that you can build an audience, you can develop a, an identity and you can really explore the space more than just turning up um, with your flag of Zimbabwe in a bag and a smoke machine. Like you could go, right, what is this space? How do we use this whole thing? And then where does the three shows come from? I think it's just a case of you put your head down and go, go, go. I'm, I'm a big fan of seasons of work. I, I struggle a bit when it's one show on its own. Um, there's something about a season of work for me just feels a bit more substantial. Um, they can speak to each other. You can develop relationships with actors and creatives. Whereas putting everything into one show, it feels, God, that's a bit exhausting. But for some reason, putting everything into three shows felt kind of economical or felt substantial, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, is it maybe in a scales of economy or can you can build off the back of the next one you've got or the last one connections I think so yeah i think this i think it's the impact mm. you just feel like yes we're doing something rather than a little show for three weeks in this little place on its own goes oh that's relatively inconsequential but actually three shows for three weeks right well that's you know you're getting to nine weeks of impact now so it just just maybe that's what it was i i, I think there's also a, an element of when you're doing it you just want to keep doing it Think. Yeah, I, I definitely remember years, and we'll get them to these years later. Where we were doing six shows a year, and they were back to back. We were in rehearsals for the next one while the previous one was still still up and running. And you kind of the adrenaline, you just you just keep going, don't you? You you, you, mm. well, you don't get to you don't get to stop. But but I kind of fed off of that as well. I think the thing about the program is well, you sort of go. We can have although we didn't really do much comedy, you can have a bit of everything. Like, you know, if you're doing one show a year, it's all on, you know, Oedipus, that's it. It's all about Oedipus. Whereas if you've got a Greek drama with a Jacobean uh, tragedy, and then you mix that with a Shakespeare, then a not, you know, you sort of felt to me that we could take um, risks on more obscure Elizabethan work mm -hmm. because it's okay because there's a Shakespeare somewhere along the lines as well. So it's sort of felt that you could kind of dip your toe into lots of different things, which you wouldn't have done necessarily if it was just all on one show, mm -hmm. I think. Um, then then you started doing reps, is that right? You, so the next few years there was there was a rep at, at the space of a, a couple of Greek plays, then there was a rep of uh, Shakespeare plays at the at that space, and then you did a rep of 
uh, Shakespeare and Amalo at the Greenwich Theatre. Um, mm. How did how did they start, and what what's it like doing a rep? So I think the rep thing is um, maybe it's just sort of being romantic about it. I don't know because they they hard bloody work actually reps. Um, I think again it's something a little bit about impact and seeing how two plays can speak to each other particularly if it's the same company of actors I think there's something quite remarkable about well one was remarkable about how the amount of work you can get done um actually you can do it you, you know it, it just to a varying degree of depth but but you can do two plays in three weeks I probably wouldn't want to do that now uh, but when you're sort of young and energetic you're sort of like yeah you can you can really plow into that and I think it's the sense of uh, the company and the impossible and so actually if everybody's firing on all cylinders pushing this thing up the hill it's a kind it feels like it's an impossible task but of course it isn't impossible because if everyone pushes together you 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 get there so I think it also means you, again the, the work has a bit more impact in that you know a production of Electra on its own only does one thing when it sits in a rep with uh, Orestes and you're seeing a brother and sister play played next to each other you go oh, okay this becomes a bit more of an event or oh yeah that's interesting and that particular rep was was fab to see people see both shows um and how do those two plays speak to each other so it, again it just becomes a bit of a, a dialogue really it means you can do the plays that are less standalone they can sit with something else I think and have a bit of detail but yeah I think maybe it's part of the romantic thing about repertory that you can the company builds something together you're uh, often playing one role in the other and then the extreme of that in the other play so that gives you variety uh, they feed then into each other um, and for audiences I think there's something really brilliant about seeing an actor in one role and then seeing an actor in another role which sounds a bit daft but I've definitely seen audiences definitely spoken to audiences who go, they start to learn who that actor is and they start having a relationship with that actor which is really special I think which we don't really get much because we don't have repertory theatres now I mean I'm sure actors have fans and they follow them around but in terms of a company having a group of fans uh, <laughs> It sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But they do. And we've certainly seen that in our productions, haven't we? Where you go to the bar afterwards and that, that person's there again, sort of wanted to talk to the actors and hang out with them. You're like, that's really cool, actually. You're all a bit like rock stars. That's quite cool. <laughs> yeah, bless them. You, yeah. You, you have in the past tried to um, engender that sort of um, allowing people to see into the rehearsal room or go through the process with us with blogs and vlogs as well, haven't you? Yeah, and I think um, they're really useful for building an audience um, and getting people who might not want to see the play or don't know what the play is, getting them intrigued by it. So, you know, you see a poster for Henry V and go, oh, no, I've seen one of those. Let's not do that. But maybe the blogs or the behind the scenesy type stuff goes, oh, actually, there is something interesting about that. Um, and feeling a bit of ownership in it, um, a bit of connection to it, rather than just... Uh, trying to sell the show so it, it for me feels like it's not part of the marketing even though that might lead someone buying a ticket it's part of the engagement really is getting people to, just showing people how we make work showing people uh how these plays can come together who's in them there might be someone in the play that looks a bit like me and you go oh i have never thought of that before or this isn't in my this play might not be in my remit something we talk about quite a lot in rehearsals i think is treating every play like it's a new play and in some ways, that feels to me like the communication for audiences needs to be like it's a new play. Don't assume everybody knows Macbeth. So we don't do that in rehearsal. So let's not do that in 
in marketing or engagement. So what is this play actually about? And if you can try and share that with people, it might be enough to get people go, actually, I would give it a go then actually, or just, just to feed into that, that conversation with people about what they think the play is about and what it's actually about and what they take from it, I guess. So it is quite, it is quite important. And I think the impact around the work has become more important the years we've gone on, actually. You can create a cracking performance inside the auditorium um, and people can love it or, or, I mean, I'm fine if they hate it too, but you know, you prefer them if they like it. Um, but it can have an impact, I suppose, is a point. But once they leave the auditorium, I'm always a bit disappointed because that impact starts to dissipate relatively quickly, even if they go to the pub next door and talk about it. Um, when they go into the street or into the other parts of the building, it starts to lose its thing, its energy. So I suppose that's over the years where we've got it, you know, I'm sure I've driven you mad with, well, what if we did this? Or what if we had a, a feedback board or a, a post-it note board or a kind of, you know, just trying to get the conversation to keep going. So the, so the show doesn't start and end with the curtain going up and going down, metaphorically, obviously, because we don't have a curtain, but, um, you know, so it, it has a bit more value than the two hours you've, the, what's Romeo and Juliet, the two hours traffic of the stage. Whatever. Yeah, that's it. Just <laughs> <Which is> now. <laughs> Sorry, Shakespeare. <laughs> well, you know, he, he's been misquoted many a time before and will be many a time again. Certainly so. when I'm editing it, yeah. <laughs> Bless him. Um, do you think that's... Um, you were talking about the variety of, of the season, so having having some, you know, more obscure or, or varied um, work in the season. Do you think that also plays into the engagement as well. And maybe someone comes to see the Shakespeare, but thinks, actually, I don't know anything about this play, but I will go and see it because I was engaged with this Shakespeare. Yeah, and I think that's partly why um, some of the plays, some of the early modern plays don't get performed and they've, they've sort of been lost to the canon is because they don't have a performance history because you go, well, who's gonna come and see it? So, you know, there's certainly plays we've discussed loads and loads, you know, um, real obscure ones like Sejanus, um, a Ben Johnson play, you go, there's no way that's going to be put on because no one has a clue what that's about. Um, but my thinking was certainly, with, even th something like Spanish Tragedy, which was a huge hit in its time, but has really fallen off the performance um, history canon, um, you know, the, 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 the performance history, I should say. Um, but actually, yes, if you pair it, with, pair it with a play that people do know or have a familiarity or, or it's in a season of other works. And yeah, sure, if someone's come in and seen Midsummer Night's Dream and gone, oh, I really enjoy that. Um, what are they doing next? It might be a, an, an easier introduction rather, rather than just going, I suppose that's one thing to learn from the start, right? Don't start with Medea. Um, although she's a fairly famous character, but it, but Joe Bloggs on the street might not know what, what she is or what the play's about. So I think it does, it, it gives you that sense of um, invitation um, and as we've very often in the past done 90 minute straight through versions of plays, they're fairly accessible as well. You're not going to have to spend the whole day in this theatre with this play. Like you can come in and it's the bite size highlight impact version. Um, and, and then you can you can go away and digest that, I, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it gives us it gives us huge potential to, to reach people, I think. I think we saw that with certainly in the in the more recent years. You see the transition, and we totally saw this with, you know, being in one theatre means you can start to develop some of the data. And we'd certainly found with a residency at Greenwich that you could see people had bought Lord of the Flies, then were going to see Midsummer's Dream. So they've gone from 
a non-classic, very accessible text into then a Shakespeare, and that's the next step of it. And then those people booked for The Tempest the following year. So there's, okay, a little bit more of a deep into the, the Shakespeare stuff. And so there's, so you do feel like there's, there's definitely momentum to be, to, court, to be courted there. And I suppose it sounds a bit patronising, but it's about cultivating an audience. It's about saying to an audience, it's okay, trust us. We're not gonna, we're not gonna abandon your trust. Like trust us and take a punt. Come and see something you have no idea about. God, that's so brilliant. I wish I could go to more theatre like that, where I go, I have no idea what this is. Um, that's certainly my post-COVID thing is, I'm just going to book something. Just, I have no idea what this is. I'm just going to book it and go and just be bold with it. And I really worry after COVID whether that's going to be less the case because people need to be a bit more bankable on where they spend their money. Um, yeah, I think people are more, much more willing to do that if it's a film, if it's if it, you're going to the cinema or you're just watching it on Netflix. Oh, I don't know what this is. I'll just watch it. But but for some reason, theatre, people think they need to have a much larger investment, maybe. I mean, mm. not, I don't mean financial investment. Well, invariably, it is more expensive, but um, I need to know what I'm going to see. Yeah, but interesting, you know, I, I, I don't watch TV very much, but it's um, there's something interesting. I saw there was something I was watching on TV and there was an advert and it kept saying who the writer was. And I, I, don't, I know who the writer was, but I thought it's really interesting. TV is selling itself on the writer of such and such. And I hadn't really noticed that before, that TV was doing what cinema sometimes does from the writer of. And it, it becomes this, you know, to, 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 to go to a new, to bank into a new drama, to start watching a new drama, you have to have several hooks. And that might be an actor you like, or or, or the, the writer might be somebody you know. Or I thought it's really interesting. I thought actually maybe we maybe because there's so much TV and so much cinema that even there you're trying to go. I've got to give you something familiar. You know what's that poster outside Mamma Mia in the West End? It it, it always made used to make me laugh. It said something like, "You already know the songs. You know you're already going to love it." And I thought that's so interesting. It's that's when like a marketing company's gone. I've give up, like we've done everything fun and whizzy with this. We're just going to say, look, you know the songs, just buy a blooming ticket. <laughs> it's like, it just felt to me like the most direct marketing as in, you already know what this is, just buy a ticket. And that makes me worry about, and, you know, talking as a classicist, that makes me worry about new work because blimey, if you're in a theatre next to that and a, a punter's going, well, where should I spend my 60, 70 quid? They're going to go with what they know, aren't they? Generally. Um, and of course, I totally appreciate I say that as someone who does plays of dead writers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I totally appreciate that. I don't do new writing. But um So you you just you just mentioned um being uh in a, in the same venue, uh presumably talking about the residency at the Greenwich. But what 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 were the benefits of of kind of working in different venues, which which you did for what which Lazarus did for for quite some time? I think there's something great about creating work that's site responsive. So thinking about, um, you know, where does that place sit? That's quite nice, having the variety to go, well, which auditorium should that sit in? And I kind of feel a bit like that's fantasy programming at the National, you know, right, here's the plays we're doing, which auditorium should it go in? Uh, and I'm sure it doesn't work like that. I'm sure Rufus Norris has much more to <laughs> negotiate than that. But um, 
but you can decide which play goes in which space. And ultimately they're all black box theatres, but the tone's very different. So, you know, venues we've worked in quite a lot, like the Tristan Bates, the, the Jack Studio in Broccoli and the Blue Elephant, you sort of go, they, they're all black studios, black box studio theatres, but they've got a very different vibe, a very different feel about them. And certain work you think, oh, that'll sit nicely in that space. And that one will fit quite nicely in there. And, and you think about the audience, who's it for and at what time of year and, you know, um, so that that was exciting because you could really really seriously think about what place sits in that space at that time of year and then who's going to be in it and what does it look like and of course at the jack we start exploring in the round which we hadn't done in other spaces um we'd done traverse of course and three sides in other spaces but it just felt natural to go in the round so you're sort of playing with that whole um you know what the venue could offer so there's there was loads of approach to that and of course you're also going into spaces that have got their own audience as well so you're accessing people who might not normally see your work that are loyal to the venue and they trust their venues artistic directors and the program so they go oh, i'll give that a go so you're, you're you're picking up new followers via the trust they have with their venues which is really really which is great it's really exciting mm. um so 2014 and 2015 was a couple of funny years for both of us. Um, 2014, uh, we were in rehearsals for a production um, and you had a not very nice uh, altercation with a car door. Um, and so you were hospitalized and we had to cancel the production. And then in 2015, um, I pretty much did the same um, while we were in a production. Do you think, um, well, I mean, I know they affected us and affected the work, but do you how how did that how did that affect affect what we did those years? Um, oh, well, that's a good that's a very good question. <laughs> um, that's the thing that academics say, isn't it, when they're thinking about the answer? <laughs> um, uh, I don't know actually. How did it affect you? Um, well, I, I certainly feel like. Um, so I, we we had we were in the production of Revenge's Tragedy. It was the run was happening. It was the second week of the run, and I I don't really feel like that production ever ended for me. I wasn't there for the closing night. I wasn't there for the get out, which is quite a quite a pivotal moment in the whole process. Um, and then, but then, I think, I think the the accident and the the recovery then meant that I was I wanted to be a lot more. Um, a lot more active in the theatre making process, I think, um, a, bit, a bit more certain about things when when I did come to direct something again, I think, just not really wasting the opportunities, I think, is what, mm. what came out of it for me. Mm. Yeah, um, I don't, yeah, I don't recall at the time, really. Uh, I think, I think you sort of just go into crisis mode as in like, what's going to actually happen to the show? And the show wasn't finished so it didn't feel like I mean it might have been different if the show had been finished this Henry V if if Henry V had been finished in rehearsal and we were just running it for the last couple of days it might have been different because you might have gone actually we can carry on with it and we just sort of work around it I guess I think the, the initial thing was we just didn't know how severe the injury was going to be and basically was facing the prospects so this happened on a Thursday didn't it was it the penultimate day I think or the final day um, I think it was the penultimate day, but um, it was a Thursday. Mm. And so basically I had the operation on the day I went in and they didn't know whether it was going to have worked. 
uh, i.e. so there's a cut to my arm and they didn't know whether uh, the operation would have worked until the following Monday. Mm-hmm. So I had to go back in the Monday and have these tests. And basically, if my fingers hadn't started to move by Monday, uh, I always <laughs> always remember uh, I had this nurse called Sarah and I will always remember this woman for the rest of my life. Um, and she um, came in and she explained after the operation what, what had happened and what they'd done and said there's some internal stapling and it's sorry, there should be a disclaimer on this, shouldn't it? <laughs> it's a bit gruesome. Um, it, the, some internal stapling and because uh, basically the car window, it was a sports car and the car window had gone through my arm to the bone. So it cut all the tendons and mm-hmm. muscle and everything. And then, um, and so they didn't know uh, what the the full implications whether it worked until the Monday but as I was leaving on the Thursday I said to the nurse you know well what happens if it doesn't work and she said and I'll always remember these words well there's in a really strong thick Irish accent she said um well there's no point having an arm if you can't use it is there oh my gosh <laughs> and I went what and I of course I was still high as a kite really um because they did it all very quickly it was you know that morning and they went straight into this they basically did the operation in a and e I mean it was just just a bit mental uh in a side cupboard I just anyway we won't go into the story <laughs> that story it was very strange very strange anyway um and um and she said well there's no point having an arm if you can't use it and I said are you talking about cutting my arm off and she said well we like to call it amputation but let's worry about that on Monday and then she oh gave my me my pain relief and then was like right this one could go it was really it was just kind of phenomenal really and then um yeah and then luckily the fingers worked and you know it was fine but yeah it was it, so at that point she sort of think well how the hell can we do a tech rehearsal if I'm going into King's College Hospital to have my arm removed yes. I mean, <laughs> so it just felt sort of impossible really but I don't I don't I don't yeah maybe it does make you appreciate um the process a bit more or, or the importance of it um you did come back to Henry V the following year in 2015. That, yeah. that production was ultimately different from what the production would have been in the in the original guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I suppose, I suppose in that sense, there's closure on Henry V for now, mm, I suppose. Mm, um, mm. Yeah. I, yes, I suppose there is, because, because at least it, it happened in a slightly different way with a slightly different cast. But yeah, it did yeah, happen. Yeah. 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 Um, so... Brecht is something you talk about, or Bertolt Brecht is someone someone in his work and his ideas, is someone you talk about a lot in rehearsal now. And I think he was always there. But 2016, you did a production of Bertolt Brecht's The Caucasian Chalk Circle. Um, it seems, from from speaking to you, it seems that that was quite a pivotal uh, experience for you in, in, or maybe an awakening, I don't know, um, in Brechtian technique and, and, and theory. Um, is that is that the case? Yeah, well, I think up and uh, you know up until doing Caucasian Chalk Circle, we'd already always done work where the actors are on stage all together all of the time. Uh, costume changes are done on stage. You see the tech, so you know it's a play. Uh, very often we leave the props tables exposed. Well, it's not leaving; it's putting them in a place where they're exposed. So, so we're sort of doing that. So, in a way, when I was prepping for Chalk, I kind of was like reading a lot about Brecht. It was like but what's so radical about this? We do this all the time. You know, that was really ignorant of me, of course. And then I think it was the first week of rehearsal and um, I went to see, a, I won't name the show, but we went to see a musical in town that had just opened a, a new show, a new musical. And it was interesting that every time the characters said where they were going, 
the scenery would change in into a, a literal a literal musical theater version of naturalism so there's one bit where they they were they were front of house and they go come on let's go backstage and a bit of music would happen and the scenery would turn around and it was a literal backstage and I was like okay I get this Let, come on let's go to the office and then they go to the office and a literal office would come on and and there was part of me went god this is so bloody reductive like where's anybody's imagination and it's a musical I mean blimey you could have done this very representational you could have done this very simply and it and also we wouldn't have had to have half an hour of incidental music of this bloody truck keep going on and off anyway and I, I, I thought, and actually it sort of just smacked me in the face a bit really, is that Brecht is still radical now because we, we, you know, certain parts of his practice, certainly aesthetically, we have still adopted and, and, and theatre uses. But of course, at, at the time when Brecht was, was starting out and, you know, creating this political theatre, but, but more, more importantly, I think, what his work in terms of stripping back the bullshit. Um, it just went, of course, this is why this is radical, because here I've just seen a brand new musical, of, you know, a brand new show in town. And it's almost like we've learned nothing about how to tell a story. You're doing the same weird melodrama that's been going on for hundreds of years. So so it was kind of fundamental because you go, yes, why is it important? So even though these are things that we've done all the time with people on stage all the time, costume changes on stage and all that sort of thing, when you then feel backed up in your argument or your process you go actually I've now got the confidence and oh my god that poor cast because I would have a Brecht quote of the day maybe sometimes twice daily and I still now in rehearsals write quotes up on on the walls um uh from Brecht because I think his his writing not the whole thing I mean god I don't make them read the whole lot and uh, there's a lot written about Brecht but um just the sort of basics things like the truth is concrete just makes you go, yes, so what is the truth? Well, the only truth we have is in the text. And that was pretty fundamental for me, really, because up until that point, I think I'd allowed myself and the actors to sort of fantasize backstories and hot seating. And you realize, well, I realized for my work that that's all bullshit. It's, 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 if Shakespeare wants to know, wants you to know what they have for breakfast, he'll write it. If he doesn't want you to know what you've had for breakfast, he doesn't write it, so it doesn't matter. And I found that really liberating. I found it massively liberating because we didn't have to all sit down as a cast and create some weird, lie backstory. And of course, sometimes actors find that difficult because they go, but that's what I want to do. I want to imagine and I want to create and I want to pretend. They go, well, yes, let's do that. But let's do that based on the concrete facts that's in the text. And then we've got some pretty firm stuff to create our, uh, our imaginations from rather than we bring all of this internal baggage from our lives that's actually not in the play. Um, but it's tough, it's tough. Some actors really take to it very straightforward and it's illuminating and brilliant and it makes some great actors even greater and some actors it just just destroys their brain and it's not very useful. So that's, that's, that's very interesting because of course it then as, an, as a director makes you go, ah, what kind of actors do we want in the show? Not just, I really think you're a great actor to be in the show. You might be really great, but actually you can't do this or, or, or this isn't your way of working. So it's probably not right for you. So it's, that's, that's quite tricky, but, but it, I think it gave me the boost to go, actually, I can be quite rigid about the process, because actually the firmer the, the, the perimeters are, the, the parameters rather, the more inventive we can be within them and more extreme we can be within them. 
I started to find. And, um, and, and embracing the theatricality, it is a play. The audience must be reminded it's a play. And that doesn't mean someone every 10 minutes go, it's a play everyone. But just having um, props tables out, seeing the, you know, I always loved that when people came into Lord of the Flies. So we did a Brechtian version of Lord of the Flies, right? And people are like, well, how are we going to do a Brechtian version of Lord of the Flies? Well, you walk into the auditorium and all the props tables are there. So you see the pig head before anything's really happened. So I, I love saying to the audience, here are the toys. Uh, there's some actors. There's a stage of some sort. There's some props and there's some lamps. And in a minute, we're going to start telling the story, but we're going to tell the story with all of these things. It, it feels to me very honest and Brecht feels to me very honest. Here are the things we're going to do. It's a play. Of course, it isn't a real pig head. Now, in a moment, you might believe it's a real pig head because that's the way we use it. But at the moment, you know, it's just a pig head. Right. It's just that's what it is. Um, I think then audiences can suspend their disbelief far greater because they know it's a play. And then once the play starts, they can start believing, not believing, going into it. And then, of course, you have little moments of the play where you throw them back out of them. Remember, it's a play. One, throw them back in again. Um, so that so that we we're able to, as an audience, um, the predicament is put back on us as an audience. We're the ones to decide who was good or who was bad or uh, whether we would have done that or whether we wouldn't have done that. So I suppose in a way, I know that was a bit of a ramble, like that may be for my book on Brecht, I, I won't do that. Um, but, um, but essentially it was liberating because when you fat, you go, I kind of do this already, but then it's backed up with this, uh, and Stephen Unwin's um, guidebook to Brecht was become a bit of a Bible really. It sat on my desk for about three or four years after, just kind of, this is the thing to go back to. There's just some fantastic ways of seeing a play and how, how powerful theater can be. And, and the other thing is, the really important thing to say is, Brecht wanted it to be entertaining. So, so it can do all of these things and be a rollicking good night out. And, and for me, it just went, oh, I finally found a theatrical home in some sort of theory or idea. And so, yeah, you're right that we were doing that sort of thing anyway, but it just reinforced all of that. And I think I'm probably, it was interesting, wasn't it, talking to the actor Lewis Davidson, who was in Macbeth in 2010 and then came back and did our production in 2020. Um, and, and I think you asked him in the pub, like, what's the difference? And he was like, oh, where do you start? You know, <laughs> but it was really interesting. And actually, I think I've got far more rigid um, in that process now because, because when it works, it really, really works. It's mm -hmm. when it doesn't, you have to be flexible. And anyway, that might be for another podcast. <laughs> I, I certainly remember being in, a, in, a, in multiple production meetings or discussions or pubs um with you uh you know and with something like chalk circle it was set in a community center so people were bringing in things is this in the set is this a costume is it is it and you would constantly say is it something you would find in a rehearsal in a in a community center and it was just that simple it was that simple it, it, it's the truth of it isn't it um i guess yeah that um, extends to could you find this in a theater Mm. And, and that's my sort of default now. And I'm sure designers are going, oh, God, not this theatre thing again. Um, but would you find this in the theatre? No, we'll get rid of it then. Or yes, you would. Brilliant. And, and it's and it's a bit of a weird, I mean, we play this with Saoirse, uh, a long-term collaborator designer, Saoirse. Uh, you know, she, 
I think it becomes a bit of a game, really, where she just goes and finds objects and goes, can you find that in the theatre? Go, yeah, I found it downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> and you go, okay, it can be in the show. So it's it's just it's just giving yourself some sort of parameters so it keeps everybody on track, really, and keeps us, what's the point? What's the point of this whole thing? Well, the whole thing is to cause an impact, a reaction in an audience. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what to feel, but I'm certainly going to try and make you feel something. I'm not going to tell you what, but I'm going to, or I'm not, I'm not going to, in my head go what I want you to feel but but um I want you to feel something well experience is a word that you use and have used a lot um more more so in the last few years I think um audience experience I mean um mm. seems to be very important I think yeah. yeah but they um I think one of the best reviews audience reviews we've ever had was when we did Edward II at the Tristan Bates theatre I think in 2017 um there was one performance i can't remember where this was in the run now there's one performance i didn't sit in and watch um but i think i had friends in or something watching the show so i was in the bar anyway and um as the as the show was coming out and the audience walked past the foyer desk and and a guy just sort of walked out and he turned to the 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 box office and just went fuck and the the member says sorry and it just said fuck and she said, are you okay? And he just said, fuck. And he walked out into the street, into Covent Garden, to go, fuck. <laughs> it was just this. And I thought, well, there's certainly something, we've certainly made an impact there. I don't know whether it's good or bad, but there's been an impact. And, and speaking to the front of house, which is because of my old day job was in box office, I think it's always really important to speak to box office in front of house. Just what's the vibe? What's the, you know, it's one of the, it's in a theater, it's normally the first people I try and make friends with is the front of house, just, just to kind of, what's the vibe? What are people saying? What's what's happening? What's the experience? And um, and yes, it was something I checked in quite a lot with the team at the Tristan Bates on, you know, how many fucks have we had this week? <laughs> yeah, that. And, and it's just exciting because you go, you've made an impact. There's been some impact. It's made someone feel something. And in that case, because it was, you know, the end of the second, spoiler alert, everybody, he gets murdered with a red hot poker up his arse. Um, and we did it, of course, in a very sort of European scenographic way where it started to rain blood. Um, we, and it was traverse and we were so close and so intense. And the Tristan Bates is so intense. You can't you can't avert your eyes to this. It's it's sort of grotesque and um, totally extreme, you know, and some people are that close, the blood splattering off the body into your lap. <laughs> you know, and and it just and so people go, people come out a bit sort of shell shocked. That's so I'm not you know not trying to get people down to therapy or anything, but you just go. That's where the works may have had an impact because um, they've experienced something. They felt something. Mm -hmm. Um. So for the last three years, uh, Lazarus has been resident at the Greenwich Theatre. Um. What uh, what what has that meant for the company? What how has that changed the work? Um, what 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 does the residency mean? Well, the big one with really is um, how do you create large scale ensemble work where people can be paid? And for years and years, and it, it probably took me far too long to realize this, but for years and years and years, we tried different models, different ways of making it work, and sponsorship and uh, supporters and. Bit by bit, of course, what you realise is, you know, with only 70, 80, 90 seats in a theatre, there's just no way of making this money back. 
And so you go, right, the fringe then, and of course you realize the fringe wasn't set up to do that. It's fringe is there as a reaction, a political anti-West End reaction. So it wasn't ever, it, you know, a room above a pub was never set up to be a particularly commercial enterprise, certainly not with a cast of 10. So as I say, that probably took me far too long to realize, but, but it meant going, okay, what do we need as a company then? And of course, Caucasian Chalk Circle was at the Broccoli Jack and then it transferred the following year to Greenwich uh, Theatre, which is considerably larger in terms of seating. And so we changed the production a little bit from in the round to sort of end on thrust. Um, but what was great was just seeing the place packed and you go, wow, there's 400 people experiencing this thing. This is, this is rock and roll stuff now. This is getting exciting. And of course you go, oh, and on the spreadsheet, this totally means you can do it and make this work. So you can produce large scale ensemble work and commercially without having to keep knocking the Arts Council's door, it can support itself, hurrah. So of course, after Caucasian Talk Circle, that's when I sort of pitched it really to James, James Hadrell, who's the artist director of the uh, Greenwich Theatre, pitched it to him really going, um, look, we're a Greenwich based company. Um, we need a home. Um, one thing I think the theatre could really benefit from would be a resident company that the local audience could feel connected to. A bit like what I was saying earlier, they can recognise actors because they were, oh, you were in that play. And that's totally happened. That's totally happened. Walking past Greg's with an actor chatting between a matinee and evening, Greg's of all places. It's people coming out of Greg's, go, oh, look, there's Macbeth. There's Macbeth. And you go, this is, this is fun now. This is the fun bit because it's not being recognized. It's you've you've made a difference or an impact in somebody else's life. So you go, this is exciting now, you know. Um, so so it was really about a place of going, let's put our feet in the soil a bit and kind of just go, what can we, what can we do um, if we can expand ourselves? Also having an auditorium that you know what it can and can't do. And then all the things you think it can't do, you start going, right, I'm going to try and do them all. That's a great challenge because you go, what can the building do? And the great thing with Greenwich Theatre, of course, it was built, the current building in the 60s was built to be a producing house. So it feels so up for it. And I know that sounds really wanky and people think I've sort of lost it, but I really think theatres tell you whether it's happy or not with the show. And you sit in there and go, is this, can this theatre take the show? Can and every single show we've done in the Greenwich, you feel the building goes, oh yes, and some. Um, leading up to our last show there before the pandemic, of course, Macbeth was potentially one of the ones we'd done the most to the building with, i.e. we took the Priscillian Arch out, is all really we did. But, but, but the first show we went, actually, let's play the whole of this room, this whole of this thing. Um, it, it, it just means you can be way more amb ambitious. So, so, there was a, so there was an artistic level, but there's also a function level to it, an operation level to it, going, let's prove that you can create large ensemble work and it support itself. And I think we've done that. And we, we um, annoyingly, there was this chesty cough that got in the way. Yeah. And I don't know whether you heard about it, but in no, uh, maybe. March, yeah. something came over. And um, so, so we were totally on course to do it. And um, we would have done it this year. I'm, I'm very confident we would have done it this year. Mm -hmm. And we'd have got up to, this is the, the operating cost. This is, we can run this thing now. Let's build on that. Um, 
so it, it gave us that it was also about the impact again you know having that community club people know where you are because i was pretty convinced when we were moving from venue to venue we were losing some audiences members because they'd see us maybe at the jack but they wouldn't see the other two shows at the other theaters or you know we might develop an audience that's different to the tristan bates maybe it's a west end audience uh, there's a very strong lgbtq audience there but of course tristan bates was known really for its new writing so us going in with classics was a bit strange but we used to do that, of course, under the guise of the Cameron Fringe. So that gave a bit of a boost. Well, that's a very different type of audience. And I quite enjoyed the different types of audience that was we were having. But at the same time, it does become a bit exhausting having to reinvent the wheel all the time. Whereas actually, if you're in the one space, you can start taking that same audience on um, a bit of a, a voyage of discovery, really. So they can experience different types of work that you're, that you're doing. So it, it, it feels... And it still feels to me totally the right thing for us as a company to be based in one house really and have a home um for all those reasons it it, it becomes far more fruitful uh far more impact and far more resourceful which is effectively where you know it's almost like the the, the, the three things that make theater happen right or make theater exciting or you know doable so it was it was a game changer actually and it's just very frustrating that um just as it started to hit its stride after two, two and a bit years of getting mm. it going, that it was sort of kiboshed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, COVID. Um, <laughs> so uh, this may be a question you're not able to answer because because there is so so much still unknown. But what is next for Lazarus? Well, I think there's something to be um, first and foremost really explored about the long term future of having a building having a space having a home and that's something we're still of course talking with Greenwich Theatre about how could we do that because we've done these we've done these shows with a certain run but of course um if we keep expanding and increasing our runs and the number of productions which we need to do uh, you end up essentially running the building for half the year or something yeah which um, I'm totally excited about. <laughs> I think that's a really exciting thing to do is work in collaboration with a, a venue is going, how do we how do we develop this thing? Um, but I understand they'll get to a point where the venue won't be able to give us those weeks of programming because they've got their own stuff to be doing and their own things to be developing. So, so there will come to a point, I think, um, if all goes well, there will come a point where we go, actually, we need a another space and whether that's Greenwich Theatre acquires another space that we could use or whether there's a, a pop-up space that we could use um, in conjunction and, and you know so we're sort of exploring lots of different ideas at the moment about how how can we do that there's a touring conversation as well and had some brilliant convos with some regional venues about how we might tour um, that's tricky of course if you've got a big company like a cast of 10 to 15 that's incredibly tricky but there might be certain types of work that we can we can tour and of course, we've we've gone through a bit of a uh, a Marvolian epic journey in some ways with this whole digital interaction stuff. So, of course, when COVID kicked off, we sort of took a bit of a while to go and work out what do we do. And then, um, amongst the many bits and bobs we were doing, was let's explore how we could use digital technology inside a production. Uh, and it's really it's really interesting because I sort of feel a bit like we're probably behind the curve in that actually conversations we're now having with theatres is oh actually we're not going to do that anymore we're just going to whack a camera at the back of the room and live stream that and you're like okay we <laughs> we're R and D using GoPros and integrated live streaming and you know all this sort of thing but it's interesting being part of that and I I love that actually being part of the conversations people are having and exploring what 
different artists have come up with and, and what might work for us. And the big exciting thing I think about this whole digital thing, for certainly for, for our work, is finding a commercial angle for the more obscure work uh, and accepting for a play that nobody's really heard of, you're not going to get six to 10,000 people come to Greenwich for. But what if you got an international audience? And I think the live streaming bit, that for us, as well as accessibility in terms of ge geography, but also um, accessibility in terms of physical, you know, dis disabled patrons or, or people who don't feel safe enough to come back to the theatre yet, or, you know, that's a huge advantage, uh, as well as the international audience. And, and so that, that could be something that we go, actually, we can do this play because there is a big audience out there. And they're people who wouldn't be able to see our work anyway. They wouldn't come to London for it. So, so we're not cannibalising our own audience, if that makes sense. So huge potential there. So if, if anyone's listening and has got a million pounds or, or could contribute towards a million pounds, then I'm sure we could put that to good use to a, for a, a Lazarus house, a home, um, with a bit of a live stream capacity. <laughs> we'll see. But lots, lots of bits and bobs. And I think it's, um, there's so many unknowns, aren't there? That's the tricky mm. thing with COVID. There's still so many unknowns. But what is great to re remember, I think, is, um, you know, 2019 was quite a tricky year uh, for us as a company. And actually, there was a part of me that was thinking, actually, I think this might need to be time to call it a day, actually. We've, we've given it a good go. And it's, you know, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't right, actually. And, um, Thank goodness, really, for Macbeth and that cast, um, because actually every day was hard work, but it was a joy. To, and um, I suppose in a way, if one thing that COVID's done is it's snatched it away from you. So you feel like, no, I do want to continue doing this because it's been taken away. And maybe it takes those big events to do that, to make you realise how much or how important it is. And it's really heartbreaking, of course, because we were in the last week of rehearsals for Hedda Gabler and they, those uh, folks didn't get to do a final run through or a preview or a press night or a closing night. So, so Hedda Gabler feels very, maybe, maybe it's similar to what you felt with Revengers maybe then that it, it, you know, a bit of a, there's no closure really. It's a bit of a um, open-ended thing. Um, and that's peculiar. And I think some, some of the cast have sort of gone, actually, I just have to move on, you know, cause there's nothing going to be done about it. So, um, but for others, it might be more of a struggle and it might still be, God, we still didn't complete that thing. Um, but as I say, if anything, it kind of has reinforced the passion for it because you go, no, it, it is, it is important. It does need to be, does need to be done. It does. It does. Um, okay, Ricky, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> like you said right at the beginning, this is more important though. 60 second challenge. You, you keep saying, keep saying that you were doing really well uh, when we did a test. I did in the rehearsal. <laughs> it's no longer a rehearsal. It's it's the real deal. Um, so you know the rules. You've you've said them yourself. Um, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna fire some quick fire questions at you. You can mm -hmm. answer them as fast or as slow as you want. Uh, but we need to get you to answer as many as you can in 60 seconds. This can I time... do what Bobby just did and say biscuit? <laughs> Was it was it Bobby who just kept saying biscuit? It, it was Bobby. <laughs> biscuit and fireman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the wrong questions as well. Um, <laughs> you can pass this time. You can pass, Ricky, um, but it won't add, won't add to your final score. Um, 
this time I have a special guest here. Dun, 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 special dun, guest dun. is my ukulele. So that's going to tell us... Uh, <laughs> Sound from heaven. <laughs> yeah, I haven't tuned it. Um, so that's going to tell us when our 60 seconds is up. Okay, uh, don't drop that because we need it later. Um, so I'm just... <laughs> right. Are you ready, Ricky? Oh, absolutely. Great. Ukulele, are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> well in tune. Okay, Ricky, here we go. 60 seconds on the clock. Ricky, cake or biscuit? Cake. If you were given the chance to explore oceans, go to the outer space, or visit 50 countries, which would you choose? Oceans. What's the first career you dreamed of having as a kid? Teacher. What's your favourite word? Word. <laughs> if past lives were real, what was yours? Uh, a murderer. Where is your happy place? Uh, bed. If you had to, had, to eat, had to eat one thing for every meal going forward, what would it be? Cheese. What's your favourite book? Um, oh, bugger. Um, Paradise Lost. <laughs> <laughs> if you could win an Olympic medal for any sport, real or fake, what would it be? Uh, eating chocolate. Movies or theatre? Theatre. What job would, would you be terrible at? Um, oh, God. Um, uh, policeman. What's your party trick? Uh, getting drunk. If you could change your name, what would it be? Bob. What qualities do you value in people who you spend time with? Truthfulness. Uh, if you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? Cats. What was your first job? Uh, worked in a supermarket. That's time, Ricky. Oh, that was oh, the ukulele oh, telling us time. Oh, oh that was tense. <laughs> it was, it was. It's tense. Uh, so I right. noticed I did it in the same note. I did every word. <laughs> that, that. <laughs> well, consistency, consistency. Well, no musicality there, I'm afraid, viewers. <laughs> um, all right, Ricky, how many do you think you got? Oh, I think probably only about 10, actually. You only think you got 10? So, I stumbled on the job, didn't I? I um, well, literally, well, on the maybe. job, but the job, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so our our leader at the moment is uh, Alice Emery with 16. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> That's studious Alice Emery. Uh, and you got 16. Oh, yes. Come on, Emery. Oh, <laughs> I think what we should have is a, a, a champion of champions version at the end yeah. of the season. Yeah, that's I what think we should so. have. Yeah. A head to head. <laughs> yes, I think it's a really good idea. Right. Um, the gauntlet's been thrown down there, Emery. See yeah. There. Yeah. So, first equal, first uh, joint first is uh, Ricky Dukes and Alice Emery. Well done. You'll be receiving your prize in the mail. <laughs> no more bills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll send the, send, the, send the bill for the prize as well. Uh, <laughs> um, Ricky, that's the end. Um, that's the end, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I hope when the actual end comes, someone doesn't just go, well, that's the end, and turns off the machine. Anyway, yes, yeah. yes, um, our hour is up. Yes, it is. I hope it wasn't too, I hope it wasn't too painful, or rather, I hope it was painless. <laughs> no, it, is, it is interesting though, isn't it? Because you sort of forget about them. Uh, not that, that sounds awful, doesn't it? You sort of forget about shows and you sort of go, oh yeah, we did that thing there and that thing and that thing there, you know. Um, so it's great, it's great. But um, we've met some wonderful people along the way, haven't we? Mm, we've also absolutely. met some people that you wouldn't want to pass the street, you know, pass them in the street. But we've also met some really wonderful, <laughs> fantastic people. Um, yeah. and, and that's the thing that's the thing that's been really brilliant about this period is just reconnecting with with 
those people, you know, just having that chance, how are you doing? And it's so wonderful, even people have gone off in other careers, but still remember that production of Women of Troy, or they, they thought, I mean, gosh, some one person told me once that the production of Don Carlos that we did that they were in was formative. And I thought, blooming Nora. <laughs> uh, Don Carlos was a problematic production, everyone. Um, but yeah, a, a difficult play. But um, yeah, it's um, it's uh, interesting to take a bit of a reflective trip down memory lane and then we can go, right, onward to the future. Yeah, yeah, here we go. Onward ho. Um, well, thank you for tuning in, everyone. We'll be back next week with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved with our year of exploration by checking out our Facebook page, Twitter profile at Lazarus Theatre, and bits and bobs on our Instagram at Lazarus Theatre. All the details can be found on our website, www.lazarustheatre.com. I've been Gavin harrington Odedra, And I've been Ricky Dukes. Until next time, stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatre.com forward slash Lazarus hyphen supporters, or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Every bit counts. You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington Odedra, produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bertile Brett. <laughs>